We are currently right now in First Thessalonians, and we are approaching the end of chapter four. Now, two Sundays ago, Pastor Hanley, um, he was he spoke about the second coming of Christ. He mentioned it in his sermon in his little sermon series on First Peter, and he emphasized the importance of our future perspective. Now, I don't have his exact quote. I didn't try to go back to his old sermon and try to find his quote that he that that he had in there. So I'll just say what he meant in my own words. Our perspective about the future influences our present behavior. Our perspective about the future influences our present behavior. It is the anticipation of what is to come that dictates many of our actions and our decisions today. Even something as trivial can make a huge difference. I mean, just think about it. How many guys will be able to last a month if, um, last a month of working or school if there were no such thing as weekends, right? Weekends are our break that we all look forward to, right? And we probably start looking forward to it Monday morning when the minute we get out of bed, we're just like, we wish it was the weekend again. And, 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 and that's what gets us through our weeks. In our study in First Thessalonians, we are coming upon a passage tonight that deals with the end times, that deals with our future. And in this sermon, and also in, in our next sermon, next time, two weeks, we will be looking upon how, how Paul touches about how, how Paul touches and teaches about the future coming of Christ, and specifically how that future. That future event should encourage us today to remain faithful. Tonight, we will be looking specifically about the topic of the rapture. And the rapture is a time when believers are brought together to join Christ. And then in our next sermon, two weeks from now, we will be examining what biblical authors call the day of the Lord, which is characterized as the day when God's judgments will come upon the world. And so, take your Bibles with me, and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. Let us read this passage together. The title of our sermon tonight, if you haven't seen my screen, is Living Hope in Deadly Times. Living Hope in Deadly Times. And we're going to read the passage. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another, with these words. So what we have here, what we're going to have here, what we're going to see 
is how this passage about the future times is here to encourage us. It's here to encourage us. It's here to comfort us with hope. And I pray that our study tonight will do the same. That in this passage, you will find the resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring you hope and comfort in your present life. And, and especially for those of you who are currently experiencing the pains of death, whether it's with friends or family or even yourself. So the first thing we'll see here is, is hope in the midst of sorrow. Hope in the midst of sorrow, starting with verse 13. We see here the purpose of which why Paul is writing this section. Why he's talking about this future resurrection. He wants to encourage them. Remember, remember how Paul here, when he began this, this teaching session in chapter 4, he, he wanted the Thessalonians, and he says this over and over again in his letter, he wants them to excel, excel and grow in their Christian virtues. And, and we know their Christian virtues, back in chapter 1 was mentioned, we see their works of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness and hope. And it's this faith, love, and hope that's evident in their lives. And it can be argued as we navigate through these teachings of Paul that each one of these virtues are, is being addressed. Right? With back in the beginning of chapter four, when we start talking about holiness and sexual purity, this addresses their faithfulness to God. When last time we met, when we talked about brotherly love, about working quietly, about working with your own hands so you don't depend upon others, is to excel in their love. And tonight, in addressing the end times, we see here how talking about our future resurrection cements their hope in Christ. And, and in our passage, we see the focus here is upon those who have fallen asleep, those who are already asleep. And what we see here is we see the word asleep being used as a euphemism for death. For those, it's a metaphor for those who have died. And I want us to keep in mind this because Paul actually uses this word asleep many times as we will see next time in chapter 5. And so, and, and the meaning changes. And so we want to keep in mind where Paul is thinking, how what what is what is going on in Paul's mind when he's using this word asleep? And here in this context, we we know we know that Paul here is addressing those who have passed away, those who have died, right? Because later on in verse sixteen, he talks about the dead in Christ who arise first, and we we know that this this metaphor this metaphor is 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 constantly being used in Scripture. Jesus himself uses this metaphor in Luke chapter 8, verse 52. In that passage, Jesus was raising a young girl back to life. And, and as, as he did that, he told the parents of that young girl, he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And Jesus here is not saying that the parents misdiagnosed her. Instead, he's demonstrating that all death, it's indeed, a, it's indeed a physical, temporary event. There will be a resurrection. 
And when, and if you study through Revelation, especially in Revelation chapter twenty, you'll you'll see that there are resurrection. There's resurrection talking about. And there's two of them. The first one will be a resurrection of all dead saints, and then there's a second resurrection where the rest of the dead, including the unbelievers, will be risen up as well. And for each of these resurrections, for the saints, they will reign with Christ in glory before those who are unbelievers in their resurrection, they'll be raised up for final judgment. I'll speak more upon this in a moment. Well, what's happening here in, in 1 Thessalonians is that most likely, right after Paul left Thessalonica, there must have been some fellow believers who have passed away. And this bothered those who were alive. Those bothered those who were left behind. Because in their minds, they were thinking that if you die now, that means you'll miss out on the coming of Christ. You'll miss out on His glorious return. See, they thought you had to be alive to witness this day. And, and, and this is not to say they thought, you know, if you die in Christ, you won't enjoy eternity with Christ. But it's to say that they will not be able to witness the majestic return of Christ when he returns from heaven back to earth. They will not be able to celebrate with all those who are alive during that time. And it is in that day when Christ returns, Christ will be glorified and his majesty will be proclaimed to all of the world and judgment will fall upon those who do not believe and joy will fill up those who do. This is meant to be a day of celebration and, and it is indeed, a, it will be a shame if we lived our entire life faithfully and we miss out on seeing this. And so Paul here wants to correct their thinking. He wants to correct their thinking so that they do not grieve as others do. See, Paul here, when, when he's, he's talking here, he's talking here and saying, look, you don't have to grieve. You don't have to grieve as those who do not have hope. And in speaking about that, Paul here com- does a comparison again between those who believe and those who do not believe. Right, and throughout these teachings, Paul is constantly comparing how the church should behave compared to the rest of the world. This is a common element in Paul's teaching. We see this back in verse 5, chapter 4, when he talks about how each believer ought to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Then in verse 12, in verse 12 of the same chapter, Paul here is speaking that you, that you must work quietly, work with your own hands, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. And then now here in verse 13, Christians ought not to grieve over death like those who do not have hope. We see here, we see a comparison between those who believe and those who don't. The point is this. Christians, Christians should grieve over death. They should grieve, but they should not grieve like the world grieves. What we we see here is that death indeed is meant to disturb us. Death indeed is inevitable. 
And, and we know this and we accept that death, we will all experience death one day. But get this, that does not mean death is not natural. Death is not a natural order of creation. It is the consequence of man's sin. God created this world without death. And what we learn in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 is that it is through sin death entered the world. Death is the corruption to the life we were meant to live. Death is a constant reminder that we live in a corrupted world that is tainted by sin. And therefore, we all naturally fear death because death ushers us from this life to the throne of God, where we will be judged for all the things we've ever thought, did, and said on this earth. And so we should mourn over death. We should mourn that sin has tainted this world and that all people will one day suffer the pains of death. Even Jesus wept, right? Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. There is no shame or guilt behind crying over those who have passed away, especially for loved ones. When we witness tragedies, right? For instance, like the news that's been going on in Beirut, where the explosions are happening or like has happened and, and people have died. We should express remorse and pain over the loss of human life. As a church, we, we do not minimize the realities of death. Instead, we recognize, we recognize the brokenness as associated with death. So what Paul here is saying is that we do indeed grieve, but our grieving, it looks different. It looks different from those who do not have hope. What we see here is that our grief is mixed with hope. And if that sounds like a contradiction, it's, it, that's because it is. It's a paradoxical statement. And, and as Christians, we shouldn't shy away from paradoxes because that's, in essence, the nature of our Christian lives. Just, I mean, if you think about the gospel, we're celebrating the death of our Savior. And yet it is by his death that we are saved. Our entire lives are a paradox. And as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, we are to live as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So here we see how Paul here thinks about the future. He thinks about our, the future and he sees that our understanding about the future impacts and influences our present behavior. He understands that the pain of death is real, but our faith in Christ promises us hope. And that allows us to grieve differently from the rest of the world. And so what is it then about the future that Paul is focusing on here? And, and for that, I want to take us on a quick excursion. I want to talk about the rapture because Paul here doesn't get very specific about the rapture here and and. And I, I want us to make sure we have a clear view of what's going on. Now, there are many views about the end times. It's, and, and people hold different stances about what's going on. It's a, it's a confusing topic. And it's a topic that, you know, it's, I don't expect all of us to get right away. 
I myself am still learning a lot of what's going on when it comes to, to the end times. And what I'm going to teach you guys here is the premillennial view. Um, because it's the, and I don't have time to go through all the views. I'm just going to go ahead and teach this view because this is the view that I stand with right now. And, and, we'll, and when we're talking about the end times, theologically, this, the term is eschatology. Study of end times, eschatology. And what we're dealing here with is with the conclusion of God's redemptive plan. The Bible here, the Bible here that we have in our hands, the Bible is God's story of how he deals with this world from beginning to end. And right now we are in the church age. And we are playing an important role in his story. Eschatology then deals with the conclusion the ultimate goal, which, why we live. And so, and so just, just as quickly as I can, just talk a little bit about the end times, just so we have an understanding of what Paul here is referring to in First Thessalonians. Right now, we understand we are currently in the church age. And if you study Revelation, you'll see that the end times can kind of be divided up into three parts. And we see if the first part will be then the Great Tribulation. Um, and, and there's, there's, the Bible actually talks about this period a lot. You, know, it, you can read through it in the book of Daniel, and it's referred to by Christ in, in, in the Gospels, and Revelation takes up all these chapters, chapters 6 to 19, talking about this Tribulation period. And then in Revelation chapter 20, we see it in the Millennial Kingdom. This is the thousand years that Christ will reign here on earth with all the saints. And, and that's covered in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And then in verse 11, verse 11, we'll get here the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment where Satan and all the unbelievers will be cast away into the pit of fire, into the lake of fire. And so we will... And so with that understanding, we were talking then here about resurrection. And what is it about resurrection that, that we're dealing with? And, and when, we, when we think about this, and we study through scripture about this, Paul actually teaches more deeply about what this resurrection looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what we'll see here is that the resurrection is actually divided up in phases as well. In that chapter, first of all, we will find Jesus' resurrection. It's the first fruit of all believers. Jesus' resurrection it is in Christ then that we too are also resurrected. And so because of that, there's a promised resurrection for us. And that will be the believer's resurrection. And then, and, and we understand that this believer's resurrection is happening sometime in the Great Tribulation, either before, during, or after. And that's where many scholars debate about when this believer's resurrection happened. And when we talk about the rapture, we're talking about this resurrection. Then there's another period of resurrection that happens before and after the Millennial Kingdom. And, and there's actually two of them listed out in Revelation chapter 20. And we see it happening before and after. Right. And so, 
I just wanted, I just telling you guys this so that yes, we guys read the word resurrection like we do here in First Thessalonians. I want us, to, I want to point out and specifically that we're talking about the believers' resurrection here in First Thessalonians, and 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 that's still just a debate about when this rapture, when this believers' resurrection actually occur. Most of them come down in three spots, either it's before during or after tribulation. And I can't get into the details of what, you know, where to get their arguments from. But I'll just simply say that I currently right now hold to a pre-trib, meaning before the red, before the great tribulation, I hold to that being the time of when believers will be raised up to heaven before the tribulation period hits the world. If this all went over your head, that's okay. I just, I just, I just want to help us be able to understand this passage a little better. Um, and, and, you know, as with myself, I'm still trying to learn a lot more about the end times. And I encourage you to do the same. Let's, let's not be afraid of talking about the end times. Coming back to First Thessalonians, Paul here speaking about the resurrection of dead saints, joining with the believers who are still alive when the rapture happens. So we're talking here about the rapture. And, and, and I, I believe it falls before the tribulation. And even in First Thessalonians, Paul constantly emphasized how believers are saved from the coming wrath of God. And that coming wrath typically refers to the tribulation period when God's judgment comes upon the world. And as we're thinking then about this, and we're thinking about when this will happen, we were thinking then about the rapture as a sign of grace from God. That when God's wrath does indeed come upon this world, the saint, the church, you as believers will be spared from all of that. And that is a gift of grace. And what we see here then is hope. And hope is the key application to this passage. When we first here find is hope that is set in the promise of Christ. Promise of Christ. Hope that is grounded in this promise of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 14. It says here, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those we have fallen asleep. We see here first and foremost, Paul begins, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that right there is the cornerstone. That right there is the foundation of the gospel. It's not just about Jesus' death, but our hope is centered around his resurrection. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe in Christ who is risen. He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave demonstrating his power over sin and death, guaranteeing us salvation. God raised him up so that we may have hope. So that our inevitable death will not be our last breath. That we too will rise in Christ. That we too will rise in Christ in righteousness in new glorified bodies. 
bodies that are perfected, that are free from sin. This is the hope that we have. And Christ was the first one to be raised in this way. And he paved the way for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Let me be clear here. Paul here is speaking about an actual, historical, physical resurrection. And that is what we believe in, that this happened at a point in history 2,000 years ago, that on the third day, Christ has risen. This is not just a saying. This is not purely symbolic. This is an actual event that happened. And sometimes, to be honest, we have to remind ourselves about this. We have to remind ourselves that our faith is based on historic truth. And it's because we know that Jesus indeed rose from the grave that we can have an actual hope for a future physical resurrection ourselves. Again, verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep. This is God's promise to us. First demonstrated through Christ, now guaranteed for all of us, including those who have passed away already. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In verse 15, we start getting hints here of what the Thessalonians must be struggling with. They fear that those who died, the believers who died, they're going to miss out on witnessing Jesus' glorious return. And, and in fact, if we, if we read this passage carefully, we can properly assume that the Thessalonians and Paul himself, they all thought that the rapture was going to happen during their lifetime. How's it going to happen real soon? Probably for Paul, right? He, he says he includes himself here. We who are alive. And, and we have to remember 1 Thessalonians is one of the early letters. And, and it probably wasn't until Paul was, you know, towards the end of his ministry you know, in prison. He's writing Philippians and he's writing First and Second Timothy. And that's where we get a sense when Paul then realizes, you know what? I'm probably going to die too before Jesus' return. And that's okay. But what we see here is an eager anticipation. An eager anticipation along with a deep love for their brothers and sisters who have passed away. All that contributes to their worry, to their anxiety. Would the dead receive glorified bodies as well? Will they be brought up to heaven with them? Well, what will happen to those believers who died? Paul here reassures them that God is indeed faithful. And he will bring all the saints 
both past and present, to join Christ. That's, that those who are asleep will also witness and experience the rapture as well. And we see here then, we see here then that Paul and the testimonies then, they, they lived out their faith in eager anticipation for this rapture. And Paul here reminds them, comforts them, that in their eager anticipation, those who have passed away will also experience a fulfillment of their desires. And then we'll find hope and joy that is found in Christ. Hope as joy found in Christ. You see, the rapture here is meant to be a joyous event for all people, all of God's people. And, and, and again, we see here that if, if the rapture indeed falls, comes before the great tribulation, that means the rapture is another demonstration of God's grace to his church. He's shielding them from the suffering and pain that is to come. But what's even more joyful that we can see here in this passage is that the rapture signifies a time when the church will be united with Christ, not just spiritually, but also physically with, the, with their resurrected bodies. Right? See here in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Let me stop here and just make a quick note. Jesus' second return to earth here will not be silent. This is not like the first time Jesus came to earth when Jesus was born in some small town in the manger, hidden away from the public celebrated only by several visitors who came by. Jesus, when Jesus first came on earth, there was no trumpet sound, no royal announcement. Instead, Jesus grew up, grew up as a carpenter's boy, largely unknown to the world. But this time, in Jesus' second coming, this time, when Christ descends from heaven, Jesus will come back in his full majesty. No one will miss it. This will be a global event that will turn the world upside down. And in this event, the church will rise. The church will rise and join her head, her groom, her Lord. And then so we read, the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, those who are asleep in Christ will be resurrected from the dead. And they will rise from the grave first. And then together, along with the saints who are alive, together the church will rise up, be taken up together to be united with Christ. Verse 17, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This, this here is absolutely amazing. I mean, we, what we have here 
what we have here is this great picture of us being taken up into the air to be with Christ. You know, when I read this scene, you know, sometimes that's what's in my head is like the old song, I believe I can fly. And, you know, at the end, if you guys know that old song, the great song, at the end of that song, you get this choir chant together, I can fly. And that will come true right here. We will be raised up into the air to meet Christ, to be with him. As Paul here writes with joy. We will always be with the Lord. That is the ultimate reward that we strive for, isn't it? That is the reason why we rejoice at the coming of Christ. See, we rejoice at Christ's second coming not to see judgment on this world, nor is it to just receive our glorified bodies. All that is great because it glorifies God. But ultimately, our great reward is to be with Christ, our Lord. To never be separated from Him again. To dwell in His presence forever. That is ultimately what our souls long for. We, we want not just to believe in an invisible God. We want to be with the same God who made Himself visible through Christ. We want to be with Christ both spiritually and physically. Do you long for this great reward? Do you live your life in eager anticipation for this grand event? Do you crave for the return of Christ to see him glorified in his majesty before the entire world? And if you do, if you do believe in all this, if indeed you do desire all this, how then does this show up? How you live your life right now? Paul here, Paul here in, in, the, in the Thessalonians, they may have gone it wrong of when Christ will return. They thought they will experience the rapture while they were still alive. They were wrong. And now 2,000 years have passed and many saints are still waiting for that day. We, we cannot fault them for, we cannot fault them for living with that eager anticipation. Right? We, we cannot fault them because Christ himself tells us that we must be ready for his return. Church, let me remind you, we cannot be caught unprepared for this. We must live every day as if Christ will come back tomorrow. Let me tell you this, if Christ indeed does come back tomorrow, does that scare you? Or does that bring you joy? You see, Paul here, Paul here is reminding us to be alert, to be alive, to be, to be one who has hope. We learn from this passage that we are to continue to strive in faithfulness because of the hope that we have in Christ. You see, there is a great reward waiting for us. 
whether we receive that reward before or after we die, that is insignificant. The point is that we will all receive this reward together one day. We will all one day rejoice with Christ. And that should encourage us. As Paul concludes in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We are encouraged because there is hope. We are encouraged because we don't need to have a full. We don't need a fear of missing out on the rapture. We will experience this great joy of, of uniting with Christ, of being with him in his resurrected body and us in ours. Death will not have the final say in our lives. Our physical bodies will not just rot and decay in the grave. There is a glorious hope where Christ will redeem us, not just our spirits, but as human beings. Created in the image of God. Redeemed. Redeemed for great salvation. The big idea of our message tonight, of this passage, is that the resurrection of Christ encourages believers to mourn the present realities of death and rejoice in the future hope of Jesus' return. And so therefore, let us encourage one another especially for those who are grieving over lost ones in their lives. If you have lost someone, your pain, I can't imagine it. Let us mourn with those who mourn. And yet let us encourage them that their grief may be filled with hope. If you have lost a loved one who is a believer, rejoice in knowing that you will one day be reunited with them in glory. If you are currently at a bedside of someone who may be suffering from physical health and they're close to dying and they too are a believer, oh man, I encourage you, pray, cry, grieve over this pain of coming death, but do not lose hope. Do not lose hope that one day we will all receive a glorified body, a new body that will never perish, that will never feel pain. If you yourself are facing death, and I know most of us are young adults, that's probably, for most of us, doesn't cross our minds, but you never know for some of us here. That must be painful. And that must be scary. And if you are a believer, I, I encourage you to be comforted by the fact that this, that after this short momentary suffering, your soul will be with Christ in heaven. And you will one day receive a glorified body. And you'll rejoice in that. And so we as believers, we have much hope to have and we can grieve with hope but this truth this truth that we as believers have hope should further break our hearts for unbelievers unbelievers who may have passed away unbelievers who are facing death unbelievers who struggle with the fear of death because for them truly there there is a sorrow 
in their hearts that has no hope. Just, just think about this pandemic and how this pandemic has shown the world just how fragile life is. That the entire globe changed overnight because of the fear of death. And it's in the light of this, in this context, that we, the church, should seek to minister to unbelievers and minister to them the gospel of Christ. Because for unbelievers, this present life indeed is the only treasure they have. But, but church, let us show them, let us show the world a better treasure, one found in the hope of Christ. My friends, let us remember let us remember that we have an important task at hand. That, that right now, it may seem like our social life has been put on pause, but God's mission for the church never stops. That the church building may be closed, but the offer of hope in the gospel is never taken away. And I know, I know many of us here, we may be tired of Zoom, we may be tired of online communities and, and we may be waiting eagerly for a vaccine, waiting for things to open back up. I know I'm, I'm there with you. I can't wait for that time. Let us pray for those things. But let us continue to encourage one another by pointing us towards a greater hope. One where the fear of death has been overcome. One where our hunger and our thirst are completely satisfied. A hope where we will be united with Christ in perfection. The rapture may happen tomorrow, but now is the time for us to be faithful. To minister to those around us. To encourage each other and to proclaim Christ in our everyday lives. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, and God raised him up on the grave to secure our hope of salvation. Let us then offer this hope to a world in need and encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we're able to look upon your word and be encouraged by the reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. And that, Lord, every time when we look upon the cross, we'll be reminded not just of Jesus' death, but we'll be reminded that He was risen from the grave. And that in that, we have hope for a future resurrection as well. And so, Lord, I, I pray God, each one of us will take this truth into our hearts. And as we look upon the world around us, you will see that we indeed have true treasure. A treasure that is meant to be shared, that is meant to be proclaimed, that is meant to be light in this world of death. And so God, let us bring hope then to all those around us. Let us grieve with hope. Let us rejoice with hope. And let us continue to place our hope in Christ. And let that hope dictate how we are out to live today. Pray, Lord, for our discussion. May it be a fruitful time of fellowship. 
be with us. I pray all this in your name. Amen.